You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Iran accuses Israel of a second Stuxnet, claims the attack was thwarted, and threatens retaliation. Iran's not neglecting domestic surveillance of its own. Persian stalker is involved with some pretty suspicious grayware. It's election day in the U.S., and officials are cautiously optimistic that work to secure the voting will be successful. Concerns about information operations persist, and people continue to work to distinguish them from good old-fashioned American confident chatter. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, November 6, 2018. Rumors of a second Stuxnet were reinforced yesterday when Iran's telecommunications minister accused Israel of having attacked Iran's telecommunications infrastructure. The minister said the attack was unsuccessful and, according to Reuters, vowed retaliation. Another senior Iranian official had last week said, tersely, that Tehran had found a new version of Stuxnet apparently installed in some phones. This is apparently the attack the telecommunications minister is referring to. It's worth noting that this needn't be taken as implying that Iranian defenses have detected and blocked another Stuxnet variant. Stuxnet, which came to light in 2010, was directed at disabling centrifuges used to refine uranium for Iran's nuclear weapons program. It attacked programmable logic controllers, looking specifically for the Siemens Step 7 software known to have been used at the Natanz nuclear facility. This latest attack, if it took place, seems to be a different matter altogether. Spyware, and not a campaign to take down an industrial process. So, perhaps Stuxnet 2.0 is best understood as something the Israelis are doing to us. Cisco Talos research outlines the activities of Persian Stalker, an Iranian domestic covert surveillance campaign that relies on penetrating social networks to keep an eye on possible dissent. Telegram is a favorite target, with Instagram running second. Talos calls Persian Stalker's apps grayware, not quite malware, but perhaps an unwanted program. It does, after all, perform as advertised. Sort of. This seems shyly reticent. After all, the Telegram clones can often pull a user's contact list, and the Instagram clones send full session data out to back-end servers. That seems plenty unwanted to us. Business Insider notes that observers think Iranian cyber operations against U.S. oil production capabilities are a growing possibility as the U.S. tightens sanctions against Tehran. Security professionals working in higher education face a unique set of challenges, providing protection to employees and students, critical systems, and all of the devices that those students bring with them every semester. 
Security networking company Infoblox recently surveyed higher ed security teams to get a sense for what they're facing. Victor Danovich is CTO, field engineering at Infoblox. I think the most significant thing is that about every 15 weeks or every new semester, you've got a new batch of people coming in with different types of devices, and the number of uh, things that are coming in are, are changing exponentially fast. You know, in specifically the uh, Internet of Things, so whether it's a watch, a phone, Alexa, or you've got students bringing in, you know, PlayStations or, you know, anything like that. Sometimes it can get up to four, uh, and in some cases, seven devices per student uh, coming in. And every 15 weeks, there's a new wave of all these different types of devices that are coming in. And the techniques have to be updated and changed as time goes along. And I think that's probably one of the biggest differences, you know, versus like an enterprise-type approach. Enterprise, you control the type of device that's out there. In a university, you don't. Can you take us through what were some of the key findings? One of them was about, you know, 81% of the IT professionals state that securing campuses, right, would become more challenging as time goes on. And I think for those exact type reasons, uh, it's a, you know, complete new set of devices that are coming in, uh, updated code, changes to things. Just when you might think you might have a handle on something, you know, this next batch of uh, students and wave of equipment starts to come in uh, that can make things a little bit more challenging. 89% of those indicated that there was some, some some type of substantial increase in the number of connected devices on, on their network, most predominantly in the Wi-Fi area. Now, do the folks who are running these networks on campuses, do they feel like they've got the resources to keep up or are they constantly in a, a game of catch up? Constant catch up, uh, no doubt. I think, you know, and again, one of the probably bigger changes or things to think about in enterprise versus higher education in an enterprise you control the devices, you kind of can control the flow of how things happen within your environment, the university can. Uh, so keeping up uh, is this every 15 week uh, type cycle. And it kind of really starts to make you think about, you know, your approach to training, uh, your team, your staff, uh, everything else that's going along, uh, you know, with it, the tools, the technology, uh, the scanning, uh, you know, the types of devices, my discovery capabilities, uh, anything along those lines. Uh, you know, is in constant change and flux. Yeah, one of the things that your study highlighted was this notion of of uh, the the real problem with insider threats. What did you find there? With the insider threats can come in, a, I think, in a lot of different areas and folds. Um, with insider threat, uh, you come in with an infected device, and the student may or may not know. It could even be a a, um, a campus. Uh, uh, lab piece of equipment. It could be, uh, you know, an IoT type device uh, that might have been infected with something. Uh, it could have been a, uh, an actual staff or some type of employee. The type of threat then begins to propagate malware within the network uh, in an uncontrolled fashion. So, what are your recommendations? I mean, how can uh, how can these network defenders uh, get on top of this? I, I think there's a bunch of different things they can do, and I think probably the most important from an, from a higher education. Uh, you know, IT type person that's trying to service the network is discovery of the type of tools. And these are things that continue to change, you know, on a very, very rapid basis. Um, in terms of discovery, uh, what classification, I mean, you can use things like DHCP, uh, fingerprinting to find out the type of device. But the whole focus here is about really understanding the type of device that's on your network and the type of threat that be out there. The second kind of component with them is take advantage of your vendors and different types of tools to understand 
uh, how to protect your better network. In the case of InfoBlox, for us, it's DNS, uh, and implementing blacklists and taking, uh, you know, the time to say uh, or to be able to check, you know, DNS queries as they exit your network, you know, whether or not they're, you know, part of a malware uh, type network or some type of uh, reason that they shouldn't be uh, accessing and either type uh, provide some type of blocking or control, at least alert or notification uh, that this type of activity. The next step, right, and this is kind of the big change I think that's occurring in there, it's just not simply implementing blacklists or some type of level of control, but it's now starting to focus on the closed loop process of making that happen. So not only just providing the blacklist, having your users leverage your network to be able to check those types of things, but then taking that information, passing into some further processing it, learning from the type of discoveries, you know, an activity that might be going on within your network, and then being able to apply some kind of corrective action or policy uh, to be able to address that. What's changing, though, uh, very, very simple, common, old technique, you know, for a closed-loop cycle and providing feedback. But what's changing right now is just the amount of data in malware and threats and different things that are going on. And you can't just simply come in on a Monday morning, uh, you know, grab a cup of coffee and start working through some, uh, you know, alerts or different logs. It's changing at the speed of uh, light. And you need artificial intelligence, some type of machine learning to be able to understand those patterns, to be able to apply it, to be able to fine tune your policies that says, okay, out of these 10,000 some threats that have just come in or alerts that have come in, which ones are most important that I need to be able to do some type of blocking? What's hurting you know, my organization? What's consuming or what's causing a problem? That's Victor Danovich from Infoblocks. It is, of course, election day in the U.S., and so far there are no reports of any unusual interference in the voting. As Wired notes, measures taken to secure the election have been unprecedented, and while there are surely lessons to be drawn and improvements to be made, officials seem cautiously optimistic about cybersecurity of the midterms. Should there be evidence of serious foreign interference, everyone thinks U.S. Cyber Command is loaded for bear— They've got keyboards and connectivity at Fort Meade, and they're not afraid to use them. Concerns about influence operations persist, with Facebook saying last night that it had blocked 115 accounts for coordinated inauthenticity. This formula seems to be a winning one for Facebook. They can credibly claim to be enforcing transparency and not engaging in viewpoint censorship. There's some dissatisfaction with how Facebook's advertising transparency tool is working, and some senators have asked the social network to buck up the tool's performance. Twitter says it's ready, but the New York Times says the service remains infested with bots. Worries about the elections have been focused largely upon a well-established record of Russian online propaganda directed at simple disruption. That's disruption in the sense of exploiting fissures in the targeted society with a goal of exacerbating mutual mistrust and eroding confidence in civil society and government institutions. According to Politico, other observers note that when it comes to trolling, irresponsibly, and so on, Americans do just fine on their own without foreign help, thank you very much. So in this case, as Pogo Possum said a half-century ago, we have met the enemy, and he is us. The enemy often is. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. 
and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, it's good to have you back. Uh, this was an article that came by from Forbes, uh, from Thomas Brewster was the author here, and it was titled, To Catch a Robber, the FBI Attempted an Unprecedented Grab for Google Location Data. Describe to us what's going on here. So this is a very interesting case. FBI was conducting an investigation into a number of robberies that took place in the Portland, Oregon area, and they made what was an unprecedented request of Google um, specifically uh, for people who use Google Maps devices. And they requested information, identifying information, on all users of that software who were present in the location of these robberies. And these are known as reverse location warrants. So it's just a general authorization to identify everybody who was in a given area within reach of a cell tower that could mm-hmm. be identified uh, and I think they gave a radius of like three miles or something, um, which is actually a, a, a relatively wide radius when you're talking about four separate locations across the city of Portland. So the question, of course, is, is this constitutional, particularly the fact that there's no individualized suspicion here? I mean, how could, when our Fourth Amendment requires a level of specificity, the government obtain a warrant to just collect information on everybody. Right. Uh, this is a question that the Supreme Court has not answered. In fact, in the Carpenter case that came out this year, they explicitly declined to extend their holding to these types of searches. Uh, so, you know, the FBI doesn't have particularly clear guidance on this. Uh, in this case, Google 
for whatever reason, whether they wanted to protect their reputation or they weren't able to obtain the proper information, basically just never complied with the warrant, eventually became an, a moot issue because the government was able to find the criminal suspect without the use of that uh, reverse search. But I think we're going to find a situation in the future where somebody's going to be convicted of a crime because they were encapsulated in a search. And it's a very fundamental Fourth Amendment principle that every search has to be supported by probable cause, which has to be um, augmented with a level of specific, uh, specificity that a particular person was in a particular location committing a particular crime. Even though you could make a case that these searches are reasonable uh, to protect public safety and that people are you know, willingly sharing their location information to Google a third party so they don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in, in, in that information, I think you're still going to have that concern of these sweeping uh, warrants that will end up capturing critical information from completely innocent people. Um, so I think it's definitely an issue we're going to have to look out for. This ended up not being the case that would make it through our court system because the government was able to obtain an arrest without this data. But we're going to have that case soon, uh, and it's going to be interesting to see how it turns out. Yeah, it's fascinating to me because on the face of it, as as you know, some, as a, an armchair uh, observer of these sorts of things, you know, it's hard for me to imagine uh, someone going going in this direction because it seems so. You know, you can't go in front of a judge and say, "Hey, listen, I, I the crime was committed here. I'd like to search the whole neighborhood." Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it runs afoul of our most basic Fourth Amendment principles. That's actually what the ACLU uh, said about this case. Our Fourth Amendment comes from our heritage, our English heritage, uh, where its great scholars took great offense at the idea of general warrants, where the government or the king, without any sort of specificity, would go into a person's house and see what they could find. And, you know, that led to potential tyranny because you had some sort of authority figure, not with any level of actual suspicion, doing their best to dig up evidence of a crime. And mm-hmm. that's that's sort of what this sounds like. I mean, it's, it's obviously a different iteration of it. Um, but when we're talking about our most cherished Fourth Amendment principles, I mean, particularity when it comes to warrant applications is so incredibly fundamental. You know, unless this is an application of the third-party doctrine, which I think is a valid argument, um, you know, I still think it could be an unreasonable search and seizure. And I think... Um, particularly because it runs afoul of our, our critical Fourth Amendment principles. Yeah. All right. Well, time will tell. We'll see how it plays out. It's interesting that, you know, that it's sort of inevitable that, that this is the kind of thing that we'll have to run through our legal system. I suppose that's the way it's supposed to work. Uh, um, absolutely. I mean, I think it's this is on a collision course with the Supreme Court, specifically since the court uh, mentioned this issue in the Carpenter case. You know, it's obviously on their minds. So... Yeah, I mean, I think this is something we have to follow closely. All right. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. 
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.